in the military, there are lots of different leadership philosophies. I am a fan, as, as I'm sure you are, of Captain Marquet's work in tension-based leadership. And part of that encapsulates, and, and this is also you know carried through to our highest speed, lowest strike teams, the SEAL teams and the like, is not the leader's job to tell a subordinate what to do. It's our job to tell that officer what needs to be done. And they can work out the details. They can figure out what's the best way to get from point A to point B, whatever the particular case is. So the key element there is making sure the team knows what our goal is. What is our mission? What do we want to achieve? Hi, folks. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Kevin Lunny. Kevin Lunny is an emergency medicine physician scientist practicing in the community, academic, military, and pre-hospital environment. He's also the founder of Pledge Health, a 501c3 nonprofit developing emergency medicine globally. I was lucky enough to meet and work with Dr. Lunny when he was the head of the Navy Trauma Training Center at LA County, and this is just an absolutely ridiculously far-ranging conversation. We talk about, in addition to how the Navy Trauma Training Center works, the idea of the science mind versus the medical mind. We talk about team building, heuristic bias and expertise, and everything from that to object-oriented programming and what that has to do with performance under pressure. That really blew me away because I'll give you a hint. It actually has a lot to do with high-performing teams that are able to deliver their skills under pressure. Before we get into this episode, a reminder, if you haven't already to check out our book, it's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. You can find it on Amazon, you can find it in bookstores, or you can find it at emergencymind.com slash book. And if you already have a copy of that, please consider leaving us a review. That's a huge help for us to get our message out there. Okay, all that said, let's jump into this episode. I hope you enjoy. All right, Kevin, welcome to the podcast. I'm uh, so excited to sit down and talk with you. It's awesome to have you here and, and really looking forward to digging in. Thank you. It is great to join you on this. I've had such a fun time listening to the podcast up to date and look forward to this dialogue. Oh, awesome. Well, why don't we start? Can you give folks just a, a brief sort of elevator pitch of like who you are and what you do and, and how you got to where you are? So I am an emergency medicine physician by happenstance. I started out knowing I wanted to do medicine and then kind of stumbled along the pathway and learned about public health and got distracted for a while and ended up doing an MD and a PhD in epidemiology based in that, working in Africa and HIV and immunology, which were all topics I said I would never work in in my life when I was in grad school. And then returned to my clinical training and found that no matter how much I tried to track down the PEDS ID or the medicine ID route, that I loved emergency medicine and decided what better place is there to apply epidemiology than where we find all the shit happening and getting diagnosed. <laughs> For sure. And so, so I was very excited to make that transition. As part of that, I signed on with the Navy. Before that point, I was an officer in the US Public Health Service, which hmm. is one of America's best kept secrets as far as uniformed and government service. But I made the rare transition from PHS to the Navy because I wanted to do some more operational activities and, and had been fortunate to serve with the Marines in, in the desert and to do humanitarian missions in the Pacific and also to work at the Navy Trauma Training Center where we met mm -hmm. and where I got to spend two years of my life really focused on how do we train individuals and how do we prepare individuals for practicing in the crisis? And what was it like for you when you sort of had the realization that you wanted to do emergency medicine? Like, what was it about that way of thinking and performing and acting that really called to you? Initially, it was actually much more the kind of green zone, easy emergency medicine concept of getting to meet a patient coming to you with a medical problem that may have not been previously diagnosed. And, and so I was really fascinated by the opportunity because that's what I thought medicine was kind of a priori going into medical school was the opportunity to listen to a story, to examine the patient and to come up with the answer rather naively thinking that I would do that on a regular basis. I find now I feel like I keep them alive long enough to get them to smarter doctors, to be honest. <sighs> But that's what really excited me about emergency medicine, whereas my experience in, say, internal medicine is I got handed a patient from the ER, and they basically said, here's a patient with chest pain. 
that really isn't a heart attack, work them up. And that was my job for the next, you know, two or three days on the medicine service. And so I really like the emergency medicine side of getting something a bit more undifferentiated and a bit more raw. And, and it really wasn't until residency where I started to realize, oh, I have to really be quick on my feet with these really sick patients. Thankfully, that fits very well with my go get them kind of aggressive personality. And, and so that was an easy transition. Yeah. Okay. I have a ton of questions about that. Before I jump into the next one, I just want to say on the record here, I don't know if anybody else can hear it, but my neighbor recently picked up learning how to play the bass. So if you hear a bass line underneath everything we're saying, it is my neighbor who thankfully is quite good when he's learning to play the bass, but I have no control over that whatsoever. So there might or might not be a bass line in this. In any case, I think it's really interesting that decision-making process, or rather the, the set of skills involved in that decision-making process, because the way that you view the world as a PhD, as an infectious disease person is very different than the way that you view the world as an emergency doctor. My suspicion is that that's probably different than the way that you view the world as a public health officer or as a naval officer. And one of the things I hope we get to and hope we explore a lot today is how those different mindsets, how those different viewpoints on the universe come together at the point of pressure and contact to help you perform and act differently. But there's not a lot of people that do that transition point that you just said. Not a lot of folks go from sort of hard investigative science and research into emergency medicine. I say that as one of them, right? But the last time that I looked at the numbers, I think that nationally in the US, we produce around 30 humans a year that follow that path. As a very small number of people that decide to, to make that mindset shift in there. So I think it's really worth sort of digging into that a little bit to start. So when you think of the way that you view the world as a scientist, as a PhD, versus the way that you view the world as an emergency doctor, what do you see in that contrast? It's interesting because you kind of hit right in the tension of one of the main thread lines I had coming into this conversation, which is this puts a juxtaposition two things I hold very dear. I feel it's really important to use data, right? That is my background. I did research and more research and then some research on top of that. But I also think it's really important to listen to your gut and to have a feel for your surroundings and, and to listen to that. And to me, that's very different than kind of calculating through and tabulating the numbers. And I bring this up because I think to me, one of the key elements in crisis and resuscitation in a dramatic moment in our practice in a crisis, we need to listen to our gut, but we have to pay attention to the data. I don't know. I'm trying to come up with like, when has this come through? But I think thinking through a resuscitation, you know, when I watch a, a great trauma resuscitation going on at LA County, when I'm attending there in the, the recess bay, I know when it's going well. And I don't even have to like hear everything that's being said. I just know by the pattern of communication the pattern of actions being taken, that things are going good. And I can also walk into a resuscitation that's going poorly, whether it's a performance issue or just the patient's not heading in the right direction. And I can feel that immediately. And it's just this sense that I've developed, having been a part of this very structured routine enough times, that that is what I listen to in my gut. But once I have that, once my spidey senses go, or once my hairs start to tingle, it's a matter of then looking up and trying to gather data that helps me put words to what needs to happen next, right? Because I may realize we are failing in this resuscitation. And so I'll start to look at the monitor and see what's happening with the patient's vitals. Are we heading in the right direction? I'll look around and see, you know, have we gotten our two, preferably three points of access for IV for the patient? Then I'll start to catalog, have we done the, the fast? What did we learn from that? And I'll start working through the actual numbers we have from the resuscitation because that hard data is hard to fake. And I find this, especially when I was training folks at Navy Trauma Training Center, our mind has this beautiful habit of simplifying ruts in front of us. It, it's one of our gifts. It's why these you know, visual illusions work. And our brain does this to us all the time. I can have a mannequin in a sim session and if I put a wound over the right chest, but I have the mannequin programmed to have equal breath sounds, 
I promise you at least half my providers will listen to the mannequin and claim there are no breath sounds in the right chest. And this is a program mannequin. This is something that has clear feedback that I know is being delivered. That I can go back and double check and be like, mm, nope, there are breath sounds in the right chest. But it sets them on this trajectory that's completely, well, frankly, could be harmful to the patient because their brains connected that wound with the concept of breath sounds. And, and they honestly believe they heard no breath sounds. And so I try to focus, especially when I've got relatively novice physicians, PAs, medics, that they need to do more than just trust their physical exam because often our brain's playing tricks on us. You know, if, if you're hearing no breath sounds in the right chest, then let's look at the oxygen saturation. Let's look at the blood pressure, right? If we have 95, 100% oxygen saturations and the blood pressure is fine, we at least know we're not dealing with tension pneumothorax, one of our big concerns in that moment. And no matter whether or not there are breath sounds or not, we've got time to gather more objective information, either through ultrasound or an x-ray. And that's what I mean by gathering data. It's trying to get as much hard information as you can to supplement that gut feeling because both are important. But man, the data is really useful when your mind's going a mile a minute because you're stressed and you know need to change your scrubs. <laughs> man, I love that. There's so much knowledge implicit and between the links of what you just said there. So I want to unpack this a little bit and then turn back around and ask you some questions. So, okay. If you're not medical, what we're talking about here is a situation where somebody comes in with a wound to their chest and you're trying to decide if they have a pneumothorax, a blown lung. And if they do, then you need to get into the chest and open it up to relieve the pressure and save their life. And one of the things, so that's like the base level of what we're talking about, but what we're really talking about here is sort of the way that the brain works both in and out of pressurized environments. And we're really getting to the crux here of sort of a, an intellectual debate between these two absolute, like absolute giants of the world, you know, Kahneman and Klein, right. Who talk about the difference between on Kahneman's side, the system one, system two thinking and on Klein, the naturalistic decision-making and how experts make decisions in spaces, they are experts. I know we've talked about it before in this podcast, but if you haven't, you need to go out and read the paper called A Failure to Disagree that's authored by both Kahneman and Klein. And, and it's a really good introduction into these two different worldviews on how humans make decisions. And the essence of the, the argument is that essentially they're both true, that sometimes we behave like experts in spaces where we are an expert. And this is what Lenny's saying when he talks about, I walk into a room and I have a feeling about something. I can't exactly say what it is, but I know it's true. And then it is true. And sometimes we behave like completely predictably or unpredictably irrational actors, which is what we're talking about when we say I go and I get anchored by the appearance of one thing. And that changes the way my mind actually views reality. And man, is this cool. And there are such enormous real world consequences to it. I feel like the more I get into this, the more grateful I am that there are incredible scientists who have gone before me that have tried to figure some of this stuff out. And also how crazy it is, how little I understand about my own brain some of the time. But man, there, there's so many different interesting directions to take that. And I guess let's spin it this way. So when you're personally in the hot seat, when you're running a resuscitation and you're having one of these moments where you realize, hey, things are going a little differently than I think they are. And I need to regroup. I need to rematch my understanding of the world with the world in front of me. I need to check my model based on the data. How do you do that? So I think the first step is I step back, right? And, and part of this is because I'm mostly a community physician. So most of the time, I'm the only doc in the room. And so it's really easy for me to go elbows deep in a line or in an activity. It's when I start to feel things are going awry that that's my ticket. Like, no, I need to step back. I need to be the attending for this patient, not hmm. the hands-on clinician, even though I got to play both roles. And almost any time, no matter how severe the crisis is, almost any time you've got a moment to take a deep breath, look at your data and say, am I addressing this patient's biggest life threat. Hmm. And if I can answer that, yes. Okay, fine. I'm going to go get this job done. And if I can't, or if I'm unsure, that's when I take a moment. I look at my monitor. I look at the patient. You know, I, I look for, for additional clinical information 
to help put me on the right track. And then I kind of further formalized my action plan by choosing a critical action to take based on valuable and valid information. And then I take that critical action and I force myself to reassess that critical piece of information. Did I make an improvement? And and this seems incredibly basic. And and I kind of, for a while, got all like a little brusque about ATLS and ACLS and and taking those exams because that's exactly what they have you do, right? That's true. (laughs) uh, Listen to their lung sounds. Oh, there are no lung sounds in the right chest. Oh, well, then I put in a chest tube and then I reassess the patient. As long as I've done those three things, I'm going to pass that exam and and everything's great. But, But the reality is patients do that for us. You know, I get the hypotensive patient with a positive fast in the trauma bay. And I'm going to use positive fast hypotension as my two markers. So I'm going to say, we're going to give, you know, one unit of PRBCs stat and reassess. And I've done this in real life. And most of the time, lo and behold, their blood pressure is a little bit better, or maybe their pulses come down. They've had the appropriate response to the measurable data that I chose my action plan based upon. And so I really try to focus my learners in on this as well. I use it myself because if I give the blood and the blood pressure is still going down, I have to think, where have I gone wrong? Like I should have seen clinical improvement. And now I'm left with some choices, right? Did I not give enough blood fast enough, right? Am I just falling behind the curve? Or do I have the wrong diagnosis? Is this patient hypotensive because of that dreaded tension pneumothorax we talked about, or tamponade. So I may need to expand my differential, even though we're still in crisis mode, because I have this trigger of, I took an action, I didn't get the response I'd wanted. And that, again, is another signal to me to step back, take that, well, I'll call the attending role or you know, the 30,000-foot view, and reassess and come up with a new strategy. I'm struck here, as you say this, by this image of a person trying to find their way through a bit of unfamiliar wilderness. And it's easy to get a sense of, here's what I think I am on the map. Here's where I think I'm going to be going. And I'm going to do a couple of things. I'm going to take a walk about 10 minutes in that way. And what I should see over there is a stream. And if I don't see a stream, I'm going to go back and try to figure it out again. Right. Because what you're really describing is this sense of this feedback loop, sometimes called the OODA loop or the OODA loop. Right. But you're doing this feedback loop of essentially saying, what is my model of the universe? What do I think my action is? And then what is the probability of that model given the data that I'm seeing? Some sort of reverse Bayesian inference here about what's happening, mm-hmm. right? But to stop getting nerdy about it for one second, like what we're saying is we need to have this constant loop. And that probably the speed at which we do those calculations and we those loops has to be very different when we're in the middle of a resuscitation bay than when we're, when we're in a science lab doing an experiment on a bench. But ultimately, the logic is the same, right? You still design an experiment, you have an expected outcome, you look at what happened, and then you go back and sort of reevaluate your view of the universe based on what you just learned. It's just a matter of spinning that loop and being really rigorous and honest about what you see so you don't get pulled into one of these like heuristic biases or these traps. Am I saying that about right? Yeah, absolutely. I th- yeah, I mean, OODLOOP's definitely how I think about this a lot of the time because it implies in the whole idea behind the OODA loop, right, was the need for urgent action, even if it isn't 100% the best action, but the need to then immediately reassess and require and target again. And I think that's very much an important part of emergency medicine and crisis management is you're, you're not looking for the perfect solution, but you're looking for a good solution that you can then test and improve upon. And how explicit are you when you do that? Right. Like sometimes when I'm running a trauma, I will, or I'm running a critical case, I will say, all right, folks, my hypothesis here is that this is a CHF flare. We're going to do this. This is what I expect to see. Let's reevaluate in two minutes. Like, are you that explicit about it? Or are you just sort of doing most of this internally and then redirecting your team as you go? When I'm running a resuscitation, it, it's a very explicit. I'm very much a talker in explaining my thoughts to the team. I feel this does several things. One is it opens the discussion up to everyone else in the table. I feel that they're more likely to share their thoughts back with me. I feel that it makes sure we're all on the same page as we're moving forward. Like there's a clear commander's intent. Mm -hmm. We've got, you know, CHF exacerbation. We're going to 
get this patient on BiPAP, we're going to start a nitro drip. Our goal is going to be getting the blood pressure down. And if this isn't working, we're going to start looking at other pieces of data. And it allows me to have the rest of my team speaking up or, or call my attention to, you know, hey, doc, do you see this patient's rash? No, let's go explore that. Different case, but it turns out, like, I can think very clearly when my nurse said that to me once. And lo and behold, we discovered patient was in anaphylaxis, which oh, I had no idea because I had stepped back a bit and the hypotensive patient became hypotensive for a whole nother reason. Uh, and it was because we talked about what I was thinking and someone else on the team saw evidence to the counter and shared it. Certainly made things immediately better for the patient and may have fully on save the patient. A big theme we've been exploring over the last few episodes is the idea of, I guess sometimes you'd call it like psychological safety or building a strong culture that enables everybody in the room to speak up with what they're seeing, which is different than I think how a lot of us experienced this when we were first starting out, which is that that's not at all the way the culture used to be. But thankfully, we're, we're bending more and more towards that where we're inviting lots of people to bring their mental models together so that collectively we can form the best approach to this patient and this situation that we can possibly they come up with. It's a great example of, of one where uh, somebody's point of view really pivots the entire structure of your, of your line of thought around it. One other important point here, especially working in the community setting, and, and I know you've talked about before on, on previous podcasts, is that walking into, say, a code on the floor or some new environment. Or for me, I take assignments in other hospitals, right? And, and walking into that first resuscitation and talking it through out loud not only gets folks on the same page, but also helps me establish my credibility as the team lead at that point. The folks can be like, oh, this makes sense. I know why we're doing this. Now we can get together for this common cause. Whereas if I just show up and say, right, I want a nitro drip, BiPAP, and I'll be back in two minutes, that's not team building. That doesn't give anyone confidence in me. They might be the right actions, but frankly, I probably pissed them off in the process and, and I've degraded the ability of our team to function at that point. So it's both creating a great space and an open space, but it also establishes your street creds. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is an issue that we're running into more and more as all of us in emergency medicine and throughout most hospitals are becoming, whether or not we're excited about this, becoming much more agile, flowing, sort of swarm team ideas as opposed to units that stay together for long periods of time. It previously was you'd show up to a shift in alpha pod or whatever, and then you would be in alpha pod your entire shift. You'd work there, you'd work with the same team, the same nurses and everything. Chances are, if you came back the next day, like a similar team would be on and you'd have the chance to really build with them. These days, you see a lot more of flux even within the course of a particular shift where you start in this area, then you move there, then you move here. You're having people rotate through who are travelers who aren't familiar with your units. You're rotating to different areas. And so these cross-team communications and these rapid building of rapport and purpose and these micro communities that sort of come and go, sometimes called swarm teams or X teams, uh, are incredibly important and in, in becoming a much more visible feature of practicing emergency medicine. Can we go back for one second to something that you said that I'd love to flesh out and define a little bit? You said, as you were describing your vision for something that you're you're trying to communicate the commander's intent. And that's a phrase that has, as I understand it, a very particular meaning to it and a very particular structure to it. And, and it's not something we've spent a lot of time exploring on this podcast. So can we dig into that for a second? When you say commander's intent, what do you mean by that? In the military, there are lots of different leadership philosophies. I am a fan, as, as I'm sure you are, of Captain Marquet's work in tension-based leadership in Part of that encapsulates, and, and this is also you know carried through to our highest speed, lowest drag teams, the SEAL teams and the like, is not the leader's job to tell a subordinate what to do. It's our job to tell that officer what needs to be done. And they can work out the details. They can figure out what's the best way to get from point A to point B, whatever the particular case is. So the key element there is making sure the team knows what our goal is, what is our mission, what do we want to achieve. And I take that very seriously in, in all the medicine I practice, whether it's a resuscitation team or whether it's meeting a new physician's assistant, a new PA for the first time. And, and inevitably, there are 
somewhat nervous about, you know, well, you know, what do you want me to do, doc? How do you like to work? Because they have the whole experience out there from the physicians that expect micromanagement and full patient presentations to folks that just want to like, you know, sign charts at the end of the shift. And, and my general guidance to them is how I try to, to lead, which is I trust you to do your job. We know where we want to head. We want to deliver excellent patient care. And I expect you to work in good faith towards that goal. And my other expectation is that you come back to me with any questions or concerns if you don't know how to achieve that goal or if you need help in achieving that goal. And as long as you do that, I will have your back no matter what, no matter what the outcome. And that really is how I focus my work in the teams. That's how I focus my leadership, both civilian and and military side is if we understand where we're headed, what our mission is, and my team is working their best to achieve it, then kind of the key communication points for me are hearing when we're not achieving it for some reason, or when they need extra help to achieve it because they don't know how, they don't have the skills or what have you. Otherwise, I'm going to let them go with the intent, the commander's intent, which is that mission, that vision for what we want to happen. Let's say I'm listening to you say this, and I am in a really junior role. I'm a new person. I'm just learning. I'm coming up. I'm the new paramedic on a rig. I'm a new intern or something. And I hear you say, okay, I understand the commander's intent is to provide high quality emergency care and uh, resuscitate the sickest, wherever you want to say that, right? What do I do as a junior that makes that work? So I think the most difficult thing for the junior, for the intern, is to know that means they damn well better be prepared to say, I don't know how to do that. Or the presentations I appreciate the most from the interns are, this is the data I've gathered. This is what I'm thinking, but I really don't know how to make that next step to my assessment plan. They've done their best. They've done their history and physical, but they're flummoxed because they don't know to put together, you know, say really high blood pressure and difficulty breathing with CHF. Like they just don't have that concept, but they've at least done their homework to talk to the patient and look at the vitals and say, gee, this looks really bad. I need some help. I'm okay with that. That we can work with that. We can teach. What I can't do is fix the resident that just is so certain there's always a correct answer that they know that they can't reach up and get help. It's just like in the resuscitation, you know, it's never an option to not get access in the critically ill patient. It's never an option to not get some sort of line. And so that's an important part of the feedback loop is just as hearing, I just put an 18 gauge catheter in the right AC equally important to me in my ears is I've attempted three times to get access in the right AC. We still have no access Yeah, because that alerts me to the fact that I need yeah. to make sure we have someone getting the IO or that I have someone going for the central line. That's so important. And we got, we got to stop and push on that for a second, because if you tell me, Dan, put an IV in, it's very tempting for me to put an IV in and say, Hey, I got it. Or to not say anything until I have done an IV and just do it over and over again and just not put my head up and just do this one task. But for me to tell you, to feed back to you, Lenny, I've attempted three times and I have failed. I will search for an alternate site. Says not only am I feeding information back to you about how it's going, but I understand the overall model of how trauma resuscitation works. I understand that you need to know that negative piece of information, even if I don't like it, even if I don't like telling it to you, even if it isn't actually what you said you wanted, it obeys the intent and the flow of the mission in there. And that is such an interesting piece because I I think we fail on that often. We fail to teach everybody as part of the team what the overall purpose and what the overall structure of what we're trying to do is. And so we lose those important feedback loops like that. Absolutely. And it's the hardest thing to do, right? Because we are drilled to get the right answer. Like that's how we got into medical school is because we had more right answers on our tests than anyone else had, which is really tragic, right? Because medicine has so many unanswerable questions. And yet we are conditioned to be the ones to think, 
there's always a right answer and I have to be the one to have it. And that continues on into residency. Thankfully, I think practicing any sort of science disabuses us of that quite quickly because you fail literally constantly in science. In fact, that's part of the point. You just fail and learn from it over and over again. And the successful scientists are the ones that fail rapidly and creatively and are able to sort of absorb that impact and keep rolling in one direction or another, which makes it an interesting counterbalance. So we've talked a bit about the emergency medicine mindset, and we've talked a little bit about the science mindset. This feels like a good time to drift slightly into some of your other hats and other areas. And maybe a good way to start with that is, what is the Naval Trauma Training Center? So the Navy Trauma Training Center was created getting close to two decades ago as we started to ramp up what would be a 20 years war in the Middle East. And we realized that our military physicians weren't prepared properly to do trauma. Because at that point, these were docs, general surgeons, emergency medicine docs who were staffing a naval hospital, an army hospital, where their general populations closed from the outside world. They don't get trauma. They see relatively low acuity, healthy patients. You know, Typically, it's the children with runny noses, families with stomach pain or pregnancy challenges, and, and they're really not what we see in the war zone. And so the Navy Trauma Training Center is one of several important efforts to start to better prepare our teams going off into battle, or at least to be right near the battle and help those in the battle. And you know, it was focused on creating just-in-time training to bring people up to speed on the latest trauma you know, information, which over time became the use of tourniquets, which seems commonplace now, but wasn't when this all started. The importance of aggressive resuscitation, which transitioned into you know, one-to-one-to-one or whole blood resuscitation. Uh, again, all advances we're making as we go through these iterations of painful, tragic lessons learned during the first decade of war, and, and we're thankfully applied to the second decade to great success. Part of the, the curriculum by the time I became a specialist at the center is you know, kind of mixed, a little bit of didactic, a, a good amount of simulation, and then getting out into the clinical spaces and teams to actually get your hands dirty. And, and there are kind of you know, several key elements to this training evolution uh, for our learners as they come through. The first is to learn urgency, because when you see colds and runny noses and belly pain day in and day out, you lose that sense of urgency and the importance to descend upon a patient with the full power of the United States Navy, or at least your trauma team, right? And, and that means going from a mindset of nurse doing a triage, a doc coming in a little bit later, eventually getting an IV, right? All of a sudden, we're switching mindsets to the entire team's coming in and we're doing a bunch of actions simultaneously to save this patient's life. So that urgency is not there. And even when you first give them the building blocks of those teams, it's still not apparent to them just how immediate we mean. And, and so getting in and seeing real-life trauma resuscitations, medical resuscitations is really important. The second is folks get really good at being good at what they're good at. And so they come in with substantially sized egos about what their capabilities are. And say for a corpsman who's used to getting IV lines on a whole bunch of healthy young people, all it takes is one, you know, dialysis bound CHF patient to put them in their place and let them realize, nah, maybe I've got some room to practice my skills a little bit more. And I can laugh about that. And yet, you know, one of the successes out of the Navy Trauma Training Center was a, a team that went to deploy there on a, a Marine unit. And lo and behold, one of their patients ended up being a CHF exacerbation on a, you know, civilian sailor on, you know, some sort of maritime ship. And that Corman actually could get a line, which you probably couldn't have. So that's part of it. And then the other part of it's the team dynamics, uh, which is really special in the military. We have a, a strong tradition of developing our teams and functioning and reworking and kind of constantly rolling the wheel around of learning within that team to get better and better and, and self-criticize and make better. And this is an opportunity for us to do that with a team that then gets to go out and fight together for six months, which is a, a tremendous opportunity. It's tremendously rewarding 
for those that get to go out and do that. And the start of it's really part of it's at the Navy Trauma Training Center. And, and, and sometimes that needs to be guided too. I've had brand new residents come to NTTC and basically say, eh, I don't need to be here. I just finished residency. I worked at a level one trauma center. And, you know, frankly, I give them one SIM, two SIM with their team, and they'll fall flat on their face. Because while they may be a very capable emergency medicine, you know, resuscitation physician, that doesn't mean they've figured out how to lead their team yet. And so for those providers, what they're learning isn't necessarily the trauma medicine side. They may actually be really quite good at that. But they get to learn, well, how am I going to orchestrate these junior corpsmen? How am I going to make sure that I know my team, what their strengths and abilities are, and train them up to the level they need to be at so that our resuscitation can go through successfully? What an enormous honor it is to get to work with the folks at the Navy Trauma Training Center and to get to work with the folks in the Navy that are rotating through there and who are all of whom just so obviously dedicated to improving themselves and improving their teams and working as hard as they possibly can for the people that they're going to serve. I am deeply grateful for the chance to get to work with those folks whenever I happen to be on shift with them. So if you're one of those folks and you're listening to this, thank you for that. You know, when you think about that last piece of it, especially that team's training piece of it, what are some of the successes and failures that you've seen in that? And and what are some of the lessons that you've drawn from watching these teams sort of coalesce over and over again? Because the cadence of this is fairly quick, right? Teams will be with you for a short period of time and then move on. So you get to see over and over again, these iterations of teams sort of coming together. I mean, there are a couple different lessons in success that kind of started picking up the more I did these sessions because we do about 10 to 12 teams a year would come through. I think one is, again, the importance of remembering this isn't just about me, right? Check the ego at the door, which is something we're, we bring already to the table, right? When we join the military, our primary identity becomes not ourselves. You know, my first name becomes Lieutenant, not Kevin. You know, my whole identity is focused on the Navy and the Navy mission. And, and we have a codified statement that is ship, shipmate, self, where we very explicitly explain what our priorities are uh, when we take our actions. And this is what we're trained to from the first moment we, we do officer development school or basic training or, or whichever training folks are getting thrown into. So that's part of it is, is checking the ego at the door, which as I said, most teams are pretty good about doing. The second is learning where they've been led astray by all the common lessons we have out there. And so, you know, one of the things I, I, I talk about a fair amount is how for as good as ATLS is, and I am one of the biggest fans for ATLS and, and what it's done for trauma and medicine in, in general, as far as giving us a framework and, and a system to go through. But one of the challenges, because it's such a powerful system, is that everyone starts and gets stuck on airway as part of the airway breathing circulation yeah. algorithm. And, and so time and time again, I'll have teams come through and doing what they've been told, they try to stepwise go through this algorithm and they assess the patient and they equate their oxygen saturation monitor with airway, which makes sense. And that's what they've been told to do. And so what happens is they will try to fix that when in fact, the reason for the low oxygenation has a different cause. Like Again, the dread tension pneumothorax. And, and for us in military, that's a big deal because that's where the majority of our hypoxic injuries are. Our, our number one killer is blood loss, but number two is, is the tension pneumothorax. And so I really focus on this. And because of this ingrained training, they get to airway and they're like, well, they're hypoxic. I better secure the airway and put in a breathing tube and put them on you know, you know a ventilator, which is fine, except that actually makes tension pneumothorax worse, right? And so it's actually right. the worst thing they want to do in that situation. And, and again, because that's such a big challenge for us and our preventable lives lost in the military, we have to ha ha untrain them a little bit from the algorithms. I still teach 
the ATLS algorithm, although we kind of throw hemorrhage exsanguination up front. But I just help them focus on it's not, this isn't a stepwise process. We're doing this a bit differently. We're in a team environment. And so we kind of talk about some of those hiccups, the mental models they came to that that really might mislead them if they don't have some ways to, to review and correct, right? Because they're better off looking at their airway really briefly. And then I, I tend to tell them, just go through the whole primary survey. You can do that in 10, 20 seconds. And then actually go back and hit, if airway is the most important, get it. But if not, take care of the breathing or take care of the circulation. And so that's just like one example of where I start trying to step back on, on what's been told. Another example would be CPR, right? Because everyone's been brainwashed by ACLS, right? We know if someone doesn't have a pulse, the first thing you do is start doing chest compressions, which is true for a heart attack. But if the patient's dead from trauma, they don't work. There's actual data behind this. There are studies yeah. behind this, right? Because the folks that die from trauma die from blood loss, tension pneumothorax, or you know, blood around the heart, all of which are conditions that no compression, no matter how great, is going to make an improvement in survival. And so I have to remind folks that we're hanging into a trauma environment in the military. The patients that die in front of us are most likely going to die from trauma. And therefore, starting chest compressions is not going to be the right answer. Even though in every other lesson I've had up until that point, except in ATLS, right? ATLS realizes this, right? But but every other lesson, ACLS, BLS, the first thing that's drummed into their heads, they start chest compressions when they realize there's no pulse. And, And that is just not the right answer in trauma. That's what I mean by kind of walking back some of the kind of protocols that they've been trained into. Right. And, and you're sort of saying in a sense, some version of the, of the idea that the map is not the territory, right? That your mental model is not perfect. It's a tool like anything else. And if you believe that the mental model is the entire representation of reality, then you're going to be swept up in, in the limitations of that model. And I, I think we see that on the civilian side of stuff a lot too, right? You're looking at a situation, you know, the first one that comes to mind for me is a failed airway and the person has, suffers a hypoxic respiratory arrest in the middle of the failed airway. The answer to that is not really CPR either. The answer to that is surgical front of the neck access, where you really have to do that. And surgical front of the neck access is challenging. Doing it while CPR is ongoing, way more challenging, way more likely to hurt yourself or somebody else. And so the discipline to explain to a team quickly, like no CPR, I'm going to take the neck, then start CPR again, which is again, a real life scenario for me, like is a really interesting sort of decision in there, which brings us in some sense, full circle back to team building. Because if you walk into a room and you haven't established rapport and you haven't established your leadership and you haven't done a good job of building the team around you, you're going to be like, what are you talking about? Everybody knows CPR is first. So you have to sort of navigate your way through all of these waters to try to figure out the right balance of structure and algorithm, which acts as a framework, but not a cage around you. Yeah. Hmm. So that those are some of the big things I took home in, in teaching from there. I think the others, the importance of task shifting. In, in the military, we can do this, man, it is great. Like, Corpsmen are the best thing in the world. Every doc should wish they have them. As you well know, they're they're great. Absolutely. They're awesome. um, They're just very motivated. They're there for the troops. They're there, the heart and soul of medical care in the military. And they're really capable. And with the right team in the right circumstances, absolutely there are teams where their corpsmen are the ones putting in chest tubes. They're doing the advanced procedures because they're being done in an extreme but highly trained environment. And we have the leeway in the military to do that in the right circumstance at the right time. But it's not just you know shifting the sexy procedures, it's creating a way to package communication. And, and so, you know, one of my you know hats I wore early, early on in my professional life was actually computer programming. <laughs> and Computer programming, at least, you know, <clears throat> two decades ago, uh, was very object-oriented based, right? Which is the concept that, you know, you create a little program that's, say, a car. And every time I launch that program, I get a car in my program. And I may give that car some attributes like a color and the speed or what have you, but, but the core of it's a car. 
And it makes my programming super simple because every time I need a car, I just say run car. And I have that attribute out there. And I do the same thing in medicine, in resuscitation. And we actually do that naturally, but but you can kind of codify if you really think about uh, through our language. Like when I'm talking through a primary survey, I will say something like airways patent, breath sounds are diminished on the right side, prepare for a possible chest tube, abdomen is soft, non-tender, non-distended. In that language, although I'm just giving a physical exam, when I insert that language, prepare for a possible chest tube, that signaled Corman and my team who are not at immediate bedside to grab the chest tube kit and get it ready to go. And it's really easy, actually, because they'll be right under our stretcher, basically, when we're running this in the field, right? So it's not a big ask, but that gives my team the mental model. I need to have chest tube and scalpel ready to go at bedside so that when I'm done, if they really are starting to deteriorate, I can go immediately into that chest tube. I'm not then finding a corpsman and asking for the chest tube. I've just launched that program just by the language prepared to do a chest tube. Same thing with the airway. Stridorous respirations, we may need an advanced airway prepared to crike. Same thing. I just launched a crike package. I have a corpsman who's going to be essentially circulator is going to grab that and be ready to open it and get to work. And what a, what a wonderful way to look at that. I, I don't think I've ever made that link between advanced resuscitation, performance under pressure and object-oriented programming, but what you're saying makes a lot of sense. You, you know, you're developing these micro packages of very specific, high fidelity, high functioning skill sets, and then deploying them as needed. And that's a really interesting model for anyone looking to perform under pressure with a team, not just somebody in medicine, but you know, I, I see the equivalent of that when I talk to my friends that are entrepreneurs, right? They think about, well, what are the different high fidelity packages I need to have? Well, I need to have sales lead generation, then I need to have deal closing. You know, if I'm able to say, okay, prepare to like have this meeting, not all that dissimilar, although I got it you know, less cool and prepare for advanced surgical airway, no offense to my friends, but you know, like that, that logic still holds sort of no matter where you put yourself in that, in that spectrum. How do you build those? How do you build the the objects in this object oriented programming? So I think that's where simulation is such a great tool and is such an important backbone of the Navy trauma training experience, because it allows us to make a whole lot of quick headway by calling to mind all those kinds of lessons because it becomes really clear like because they're coming into a simulation space that they've never been in, right? So when they show up, they don't know where the chest tubes are. They're going to fail regardless, but it gives us an opportunity to highlight, okay, so we need to learn our surroundings, but then what would Mm. make it even easier is if we give a trigger that you're as a corpsman, this is one of your jobs. You need to then grab it, be ready to go. You know, just as I believe every corpsman needs to walk around anytime with, you know, two tourniquets and needle D's in their pocket ready to go, just because those are like two of the few things in their life they will potentially lose a life if they don't actually have immediately accessible. Same thing with docs. You know, we have residents running around with their 11 blades. It's the same concept. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And, and, And that to me, that same logic of like, what are the core skill sets that everybody needs to be able to perform in a pinch like that, right? Like head tilt, jaw thrust. Are you doing efficient bag of valve masking? Do you know where the code card is? Do you know how to turn on the defibrillator? Do you know how to set up suction in a pinch? Can you do it one-handed, right? Like these really core packages that everybody should be able to do to up your game from really, we're talking about going from zero to one here in some sense, right? We're not even talking about like one to two, like these are the zero to one packages that you have to be able to run in order to make things work. And that are maybe not as fun and sexy as putting an advanced surgical airway in, but that make enormous differences to the ability of your team to perform under pressure. Super cool. Lenny, I want to be, I want to be mindful of our time here. We're amazingly approaching an hour already. I feel like we could go into like, you know, rounds three to six of this and with like very little, uh, very little loss of interesting things to talk about. But I wonder at the end, if you want to issue a challenge to folks listening to this, what do you want people to do differently tomorrow? What do you want them to take away and and start working on? So I think the one thing we haven't talked about so much, but that, but 
but we've alluded to, and, and I think are a hugely important part in, in crisis action is thinking about ahead of time, what are your key fail-safe moments? It's, it's that old, you know, climbing Everest, your two o'clock turnaround time. Like if you don't turn around at two, you're putting the whole mission in jeopardy. In resuscitation, I have some of those. And so my challenge is to, to our listeners to think about their activities, their critical activities, and what are the fail-safe moments they need to build in ahead of time so that they can take their ego out of it and just turn around at two o'clock. So for me, I think the one example is the airway. I give myself three attempts on airway. If Mm -hmm. I have not secured the airway at three attempts, I'm going for a crike. And if I'm bagging up for that third attempt, this is where I deploy my package. I tell the team, if I don't get this, we're moving immediately to a surgical cricothrotomy. I need an 11 blade and the 6.0 ET tube and the bougie. And that way, while I'm trying my third attempt, my team's getting the equipment I need, but the team's also mentally prepared for the fact that I'm about to cut open the neck. Yeah. And and, and so that's what I'm talking about is the fail-safe moment. I, I kind of build a little flare into it, but but the idea is I have a three strikes or I'm out for airway. I check my ego out of it. I, I'm really good at airways. Maybe if I tried a fourth, I'd get it. But I just set that rule because... I've never lost a patient that cried, uh-huh. but I've lost patients to airway deaths. And uh, <laughs> there are rare stories on the crike losses there too, but when done right, it's a very effective tool. It's underutilized. Uh, it's not the only thing out there for fail safes that I use, but that's, I think, a really solid. Yeah, that's thing. a great example. That's a great example. So, so to, to look through your projected paths and to figure out where you might fail and build in intelligent fail-safes before that. Practice them, get your tools ready, and get used to making that happen. Yep, exactly. Incredible. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking to me about this. This has been been so cool. I have a ton to think about and dig into. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and all the other guests. It's a great podcast to be a part of. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right. Good luck out there.